After the sermon, we will respond by singing from hymn 28, stanzas 4, 6, and 7. Beloved congregation, brothers and sisters, I don't have to tell you that it is very difficult to give someone insight into his own behavior and way of thinking, especially if such thinking and such behavior is part of their personality. They've always been like that. It's part of who they are. That was the dilemma that the Lord Jesus faced when he was confronted by a lawyer who wanted to put him to the test. This man was brought up with a specific mindset of Jewish legalistic thinking. It was baked into him and was reinforced by the thorough education that he received as a lawyer. He knew the law frontwards and backwards. And now someone comes along, like Jesus of Nazareth, who, in his opinion, is dead wrong about the law of God and how that functions in the lives of people and in society. So he is convinced that this Jesus is a dangerous man. He's a heretic. He's leading people astray. He had just heard Jesus condemn cities full of Jewish citizens who did not listen to him, and he condemned them to hell. How dare he? How do you deal with such a man when he challenges you, as he did with the Lord Jesus? Well, the Lord Jesus knows that this man is that wrong. And also he knows that it will be difficult to convince him. So how do you go about doing that? Well, brothers and sisters, it's masterful to see the way that the Lord Jesus handles this man. No one can rival his wisdom and skill. The conversation that Jesus has with this man is absolutely brilliant. Let us learn from him as I preach to you about the brilliant way in which Jesus teaches us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we will see that he does that by, in the first place, entering our world, secondly, telling a simple story, and thirdly, giving a most basic command. If you want to be able to correct someone, especially someone with whom you do not have a relationship, and then you first have to look at what makes that person tick. You have to enter his world, and you have to understand where he is coming from. Else you will accomplish very little. That's what Jesus does, and he's very good at it. That is clear from the way that he deals with the lawyer who wanted to put him to the test. Now, why would this lawyer want to do that? Well, considering this from his perspective, that's quite understandable. For think about what Jesus had just said to the crowd. He said that it will be worse for the Jewish people of that day 
and then for the condemned people who lived in foreign, in foreign heathen cities long ago, if they do not repent, if they do not listen to him. He said that it will be worse for the Jews than for them. Now, that's quite a statement, isn't it? Yet, that's what he proclaimed to his disciples and all the people standing around him. Now, the disciples knew him. They had seen him at work. They had heard the things he had said and observed the things he had done, the miracles, etc. And from his words and actions, they knew that this Jesus of Nazareth was sent from God. Oh, sure, there were still lots of things they didn't understand about his mission, but that much they knew. And they knew they had to listen to him. The lawyer, of course, did not have that history with him and therefore had no idea what Jesus was all about. From what he had Jesus say, he concluded that Jesus was against the Jews, that he was some rebel, that he did not love them, and that he did therefore not keep the law of love, for else he would not condemn those who would not listen to him. And so for that reason, this lawyer is convinced that he is an imposter, a heretic, a dangerous man, and he wants to discredit and expose him. And now this lawyer asks him a question in a cunning way. For note the way in which he addresses him. He calls him, first of all, teacher. That's a title of respect. And he also stands up. That's another show of respect. No doubt he feigns respect in order to disarm him and in order to have others think that he has some regard for him. But as becomes clear, he does not have any regard for him at all. He holds him in contempt. The lawyer is convinced that he himself keeps all the laws and that he will, in spite of Christ's claims against those who will not listen to him or his disciples, that he will inherit eternal life. And this question is designed to expose Jesus' false teachings about those who supposedly stand condemned. Of course, the Lord Jesus is well aware of what is happening. And he is also very familiar with this man's belief system. He knows how he thinks. The Pharisee, this Pharisee sees himself as being righteous because of his doctrine and because of the way that he conducts himself. And that is already from, evident from the question that he asks. For he asks, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's actually a dumb question, isn't it? How can you earn an inheritance? An inheritance is passed down from father to son. That's your birthright. As long as you remain a member of the family in good standing, you will receive that which is legally yours. That's not something you earn. And so the natural thing to do would be for Jesus to explain that to him. But he doesn't do that. The Lord Jesus knows this man is blind. He knows that he has invested his whole life in trying to earn his inheritance, in trying to earn his salvation by keeping the law and then some. His whole career has been built on it. 
And you do not just change someone's thinking just like that. It needs extra effort. So what does the Lord Jesus do instead? He does not directly attack his point of view. That rarely works. No, he takes his starting point in the lawyer's own belief system. He enters his world and demolishes it from the inside out. Look at how the Lord Jesus responds to the lawyer's question about inheritance. He asks him about what, according to him, the law states regarding the earning of eternal life. He said, what is written in the law? But he adds something to that. He also asks, how do you read it? In other words, Jesus wants him to tell him not only what the Bible says, but also the way in which the lawyers interpret that law. For as you know, the Jews were not just satisfied with the law of Moses. No, they wanted a further refinement of that law, and they prescribed exactly under what circumstances a particular law was to be applied. And that tradition of the elders, as they call it, they put on an equal level with the law of Moses. Actually, they put it on a higher level, for that's what anybody does who has something as authoritative as God's word. In the end, it supersedes it. Now, the answer that the lawyer gives is a very interesting one. He gives him the summary of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it appears that he hit the nail right on the head. But now look at how the Lord Jesus answers him. He said to him, you have answered correctly. But again, he adds a very significant phrase. And the meaning is not lost on the lawyer. Lawyer is not a stupid man. Jesus says, do this and you will live. There's an implied criticism here. He is gently suggesting that the lawyer might not exactly be doing that, that he is lacking in loving his neighbor as himself. In this way, the Lord Jesus tricks him into asking another question. And the lawyer now asks who his neighbor is. As it says in the text, he wants to justify himself. For he is thoroughly convinced that he keeps also the summary of the law better than anybody else. Certainly better than Jesus who would have whole cities of his neighbors, his fellow Jews, destroyed because they would not listen to him. And he wants to force the Lord Jesus to come to that conclusion as well. The problem with the lawyer's approach is that he does not do what the, what the Lord Jesus does, namely to consider where the other person comes from. He's also convinced about the correctness of his own position. And so it does not come up in his mind to do that either. And so he does what he would expect Jesus would do if he were to be asked a question, and namely to give a list of all those people who are your neighbors. 
for that is the way the lawyers and the Pharisees do it. They love lists and they love making distinctions between people. They love to add to and to elaborate on the law. And this man is so entrenched in his own way of thinking that he is convinced that Jesus also has to come up with a list of his own. Now, according to the Jew of that day, who is one's neighbor? Well, the commandment to love one's neighbor as oneself is found in Leviticus 19, verse 18. And that's the text that the lawyer quoted. But it is quoted within the context of one's brother. So the lawyers interpreted that passage to refer to one's fellow Jew. Only a righteous Jew can be your neighbor. Not foreigners, not sinners. Now the Lord is the Lord Jesus is aware of his way of thinking. And he let this lawyer by the nose in order to get him to ask that very question. For this sets the stage for Jesus to bring him a step closer to the truth by means of a story. We come to the second point. The story that Jesus tells about the Good Samaritan is brilliant. It seems very simple. Everybody can understand it, and it is. And yet it is very deep and profound. In answer to the lawyer's question who one's neighbor is, Jesus tells him the story about a man who went from Jerusalem to Jericho. The road that he speaks about here is about 17 miles long. It's a treacherous road and the terrain is such that robbers can easily hide along it. And since this man was coming from Jerusalem, the audience would automatically assume that this man is a Jew. In the first place, it's on Jewish territory. And furthermore, people travel to Jerusalem frequently because of the temple there. Anyway, while going along that road, this man was attacked, stripped and beaten, and left for dead. The details here are quite important. For they show us that he was left totally helpless and unidentifiable. From the Greek, it's also clear that this man was beaten to within an inch of his life. And so he is half dead, as it says in the text. He is unconscious. Now, now, how do you normally identify people? Well, especially in the Middle East, you identify them by the kind of clothes they wear. Each region had its own distinctive dress. Well, the man lying there on the road to Jericho had no clothes. He was stripped of his clothes. How else do you identify someone? By his speech. Each region also has its distinctive dialect. The man was unconscious. He could not speak. So anyone coming by on that road would not be able to tell what kind of person was lying there. He would not know anything about his identity. He would, it could even be a despised foreigner. And that was exactly the dilemma for the priest who happened to come by. And now the priest has become a victim of his own theological system. What is he to do? 
For in the first place, he is not allowed to touch a dead body. For that's what the law of Moses says. To do so would render him unclean. But the Pharisees had added many other stipulations to that law. According to the oral tradition, a devout Jew, in order not to be defiled, cannot be within four cubits of a dead man. And so it is for that reason that he passes by on the other side of the road. Just in case he was dead, he did not want to be defiled. For do you know what an ordeal that would be for the priest to be defiled? That would mean that he would have to go back to Jerusalem and that he would have to go through the purification process. And that process was time-consuming and costly, for it included the purchase of a red heifer, which would have to be reduced completely to ashes. And the ritual itself takes a whole week. In the second place, even if he was still alive, he was not even allowed to help. As we saw, a law-abiding Jew would be allowed to help his neighbor only. And in this case, the priest does not know the identity of the man. He does not know whether he is a Jew or a foreigner. For one's neighbor, according to the tradition of the elders, is only your fellow countrymen. Look at what it says in the Jewish apocryphal book, Sirach. It says in chapter 12, verse 4 and following, Give to the godly man, but do not help the sinner. Do good to the humble, but do not give to the ungodly. Hold back his bread and do not give it to him, lest by means of it he subdue you, for you will receive twice as much evil for all the good which you will do to him. For the Most High also hates sinners and will inflict punishment on the ungodly. Give to the good man, but do not help the sinner. Never trust your enemy, for like the rusting of copper, so is his wickedness. And so... If this man were an enemy of the Jews, he would actually sin by helping him. In his mind, he would be going against the law of God. And it is quite understandable, therefore, that the priest did not stop to help. As far as the rules and regulations were concerned, he did exactly the right thing. Well, Jesus now brings the story one step further. He also introduces a Levite. A Levite is not as encumbered by the rules and regulations. The repercussions for him would not be as severe as for the priest. However, he does not stop to help either. He doesn't want to be inconvenienced. And not only that, he too does not know whether or not he is dealing with a fellow Jew or with a despised foreigner. And then the Lord Jesus introduces an unexpected element to the story he introduces a Samaritan. A Samaritan, although close in race and proximity, is hated more than most foreigners. And it is a hatred that has developed over the centuries. The Jews hated them as much as they hated the Philistines and Edomites. And that is clear from the writing of Ben Sirach, one of the sages whose sayings came to be as authoritative as the scriptures, He stated, there are two nations that my soul detests. The third is not a nation at all. The inhabitants of Mount Seir and the Philistines and the stupid people living at Shechem. The latter, of course, refers to the people, uh, to the Samaritans. Now, 
And now what does Jesus do? Well, he makes a Samaritan the hero of the story. For what happens in the story, a Samaritan comes by who does exactly the opposite of what the priests do and the Levites. He has compassion on the man. The word used in the text here for compassion is a strong word. He is visibly moved by the man's deplorable condition. Although the Samaritan cannot be sure of the identity of the man either, he assumes he is a Jew, of course. After all, this is on Jewish territory on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. Now, please note that the Samaritans' hatred and contempt for the Jews was as great as the Jews' contempt for them. Nevertheless, he overcame his feelings of hatred and he stopped to offer assistance. What does he do? Well, he bandages his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own beast and he brought him to an inn to take care of him there. He even stayed with him overnight. But before he leaves the following morning, he gives the innkeeper some money to make sure that he is looked after and promises to make up the difference if that turns out not to be enough for his care. The significance of his actions is great, for we must place ourselves into the mindset of that day and culture. For the Samaritan to do what he did was very unusual and brave. For please consider, the Samaritan most likely had to travel to Jericho to find an inn, for there probably were no inns on that road. Now, what do you think it would have looked like for the Jews for a Samaritan to ride into town with a badly beaten, half-conscious Jew on his donkey? The Samaritan endangered his very life by these actions. For the Jews were likely to assume that he was somehow responsible for this man's demise and would deal with him accordingly. And you may say to yourself, well, is that logical? For why then would he carry him into the inn and look after him. Hatred, however, is not rational. Let me give you somewhat, a somewhat cultural equivalent scenario and translate that into our American culture of a few hundred years ago. Suppose an Indian were to come into a western town with a scalped white man on the back of his horse, checking into a room over the local saloon and staying the night with that white man in the same room with him. Any Indian so brave and foolish would be fortunate to get out of town alive. And so you see how unconcerned the Samaritan was for his own welfare. His concern was only for the helpless and beaten man. He could have just dropped the man off at the door of the inn and disappear in this way, remain anonymous, but he doesn't. He does not mind making himself vulnerable. This Samaritan is willing to pay quite a price for the welfare of another, of a total stranger. And now Jesus has him where he wants him. He asked the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? A more literal translation would be, 
Which of these three has become your neighbor? That's how it says it in the Greek. And that's also the very point that Jesus wants to make. One's neighbor is not someone whom you define beforehand. That's what the Pharisees do. No, your neighbor is he with whom you come into contact, no matter who he is, even if he is your arch enemy. And when you meet a needy stranger, then he has become your neighbor, no matter who he is. And now the lawyer has to give the obvious answer. The Samaritan has become the neighbor. But the lawyer cannot even bear to mention his name. He says, the one who showed him mercy. Now the Lord Jesus is at the point where he wanted him in the first place. He has come full circle and repeats the line from before he instructed the lawyer with this story and says to him again, you go and do likewise. He gives him a most basic command. Love your neighbor. We come to the final point. Before the Lord Jesus told this story about the Good Samaritan, the lawyer was convinced that he was doing exactly what God commanded and then some. Now it's a completely different ballgame. He exposed the lawyer for the kind of person he is, namely self-righteous and lacking in compassion, someone who thinks that he is better than others because of who he is as a Jew and what he does as a lover of the law. By reinterpreting for him who one's neighbor is, Jesus shows them how far he falls short of the requirement to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's a whole new way of thinking for this lawyer. This is a whole new world for him. Now, he can no longer be so smug in his own self-righteousness. But what about us? Let's look at ourselves. Do you... Do you and I, do we love our neighbor as ourselves? Think about it. For such a constant or such a consistent application requires a heart which is constantly pure and constantly filled with compassion for others. Who is able to keep God's law perfectly? The lawyer certainly couldn't, if that is who one's neighbor is. And what about you and me? Are we able to fulfill such a requirement? You will admit we can't. No one can. And yet, brothers and sisters, perfection is required from us. At least we must attempt to keep the law of God. And so we need Jesus. We need his example to be like him, but also his mercy, because we can never attain perfection on our own. On the contrary, he fulfilled the law perfectly. Look at how he conducted himself on earth. For example, in Luke 9, verse 51 and following, we read that the Lord Jesus himself had just prior to this 
experienced the rejection of the Samaritans, for they would not allow him to stay in their village. Yet, now just after this has happened to him, he does not shrink back from showing the Samaritans in a good light. The Lord Jesus does not share the hatred of his fellow Jews, indeed his fellow man. He doesn't hold grudges. He has compassion on everyone who crosses his path. And now he teaches us to do the same. He teaches us to forgive. He teaches us to be compassionate, not to look down on others. He teaches us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so let me ask you, brothers and sisters, and I ask myself the same question. How does that function in your dealings with others? We often do hold grudges, don't we? We look down on others as well. We're often unkind, even to those in the household of faith, don't we? Think about it. I'm sure there are some people here in this church building whom you don't like very much and you don't really want very much to do with them. What about your own home? Are you always kind to your children, to your wife, to your husband? Or do you have lists of family members that you like more than others? Do you have favorites? Your family members are your closest neighbors. You have to love them, warts and all. It's God's command. And what about outsiders? Are you a racist? Do you think that you are superior to others because of the skin of your color or because of your culture or because of your abilities? Do you think that others are the authors of their own misfortune because of their incompetence and that they are beyond help or not worthy of help? How do you treat others? This parable of the Lord Jesus teaches us that we must love our neighbors as ourselves. Kindness goes such a long way. Be kind to your children. To be kind to your classmates, to your wife, to your husband. And God also teaches us that we must be able to make sacrifices for others. That's hard, isn't it? I know it is for me. By nature, we are selfish. We look after ourselves first. But we must be like the Lord Jesus. His actions resemble that of the Good Samaritan. The very things he was doing, Jesus was doing as well. He bound up the wounds of those who were smarting, for he healed the sick and the lame. He made himself vulnerable. He risked his life for the sake of others, his enemies even. The story of the Good Samaritan, the Lord Jesus, is ultimately pointing to himself. And those who believed, whose eyes were open, understood. Do you understand? And do you also see as a member of Christ that you are to do likewise? Brothers and sisters, we're all stubborn people, set in our way. We have many ways in which we justify ourselves, our thinking and our actions. But time and again, Jesus challenges you and me to rethink them. He challenges us to realize the exacting demand of the law and so be driven to do the law. And yet, as we all know, we cannot keep the law. And therefore, we must 
throw ourselves at the feet of the Lord Jesus. He is the good Samaritan. He will heal us. He will make us whole. For he has paid the price for you and for me. We must become like him. We must be like him. And believe in him. And we must have hearts of compassion for others. And that's the position the Lord Jesus wanted the lawyer to come to. He wanted him to come to the truth. He wanted him to come to Christ. He wanted the lawyer to seek a salvation not based on his own works. He wanted him to repent and to believe in him. We must do the same. He wants us to be like him so that we can show ourselves to be thankful children, so that we may walk humbly with him and our neighbor. As he says in the Sermon of the Mount, The meek shall inherit the earth. Amen.